listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 64, and happy Halloween. And speaking of things that scare us, the Ebola panic continues to haunt New York and airports around the country, um, namely because people are wavering between overreaction and underpreparedness. And we've seen an interesting response from labor. Um, and as we reported previously on Belabored, the nurses union has been sort of at the forefront in terms of advocating for frontline workers and uh, advocating for adequate protections for them, whether that's um, adequate protective gear or sufficient training to make sure that they are on the front lines and able to do their job responsibly. Um, the situation seems to have been getting worse for the healthcare workers who are on the front lines with the uh, infection of two nurses and a whole cascade of unpromising news about, uh, you know, how able our public health care system is to be prepared for this. Not because Ebola poses a massive public health threat to us directly, but because it just says something about our public health infrastructure or lack thereof when you have no coordinated national plan and yet you have every politician coming out of the woodwork, coming up with some sort of grand plan to quarantine uh, the Ebola threats. So we just got news recently from another nurse who recently returned from Sierra Leone. She was quarantined in New Jersey and is actually now sort of um, on the forefront of the civil liberties battle because she is saying that as a healthcare worker and as someone who has been given a clean bill of health, there's really no reason for the state to continue to detain her in quarantine. And um, the National Nurses Union has come out in defense of her and other nurses around the country who are right now uh, worried about whether or not their hospitals are adequately prepared. NNU Executive Director Roseanne DeMauro said in a recent statement, not one more patient, nurse, or healthcare worker should be put at risk due to a lack of healthcare facility preparedness in the United States, should be setting the example on how to contain and eradicate the Ebola virus. To that end, they're you know, one of the few organized groups of health experts out there who are actually coming up with a major plan to get everyone in line and to make sure that people have one optimal personal protective equipment and an adequate staff to patient ratio in the nurse workforce, as well as continuous interactive training with the registered nurses who are exposed to patients when and if that does happen. We've also seen an enormous groundswell of advocacy from the airport service workers who, while they're not healthcare workers per se, they are also voicing their concerns. And it seems like the labor movement is one of the few voices that are clearly and rationally advocating for real solutions to these problems in terms of the way they really actually affect us in our everyday lives. So I would advise everyone to pay less attention to what the politicians are saying and pay a little bit more attention to what the nurses are saying in terms of what this threat really means for us in our public health care system. But 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 Andrew Cuomo knows best. Quarantine, quarantine. <laughs> Red alert. Teachers in Waukegan, Illinois, have reached a tentative agreement with the Board of Education after an especially dramatic week of negotiations and tension. Their strike has been going on nearly the entire month of October, beginning October 2nd. This week, parents and students turned out to support the teachers at a Board of Education meeting that saw one board member lose her patience and yell at the crowd to sit down and shut up. At the second board meeting since the strike began, the community appeared to still have the teachers' backs, as students took over the meeting with chants of, We support our teachers. Tensions at the meeting began, according to the Waukegan Teachers Council, when the board president announced that the time for public comment would be cut in half. 
The board member who shouted, Victoria Torres, has offered a half-apology complaining of personal attacks on her character that led her to be angry enough to shout. Calls for her resignation began immediately after the meeting. But all of this may also have been enough to push the board to finally make a deal with the teachers, who have been negotiating since this summer. Either way, public support never hurts. We will have much more on this agreement once it is finalized. Drivers took the streets last week in a series of actions showing militancy in many aspects of the for-hire car service business. We saw um, activism coming from Uber, um, which is the newest crop of sort of for-hire vehicle services, as well as from the uh, regular old-fashioned yellow cab drivers here in New York City. First with the uh, taxi drivers, the city council passed the Taxi Driver Protection Act after a robust uh, campaign effort on the part of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. Um, basically, it is a law that would enhance an already existing protection um, for taxi workers who are victims of violence basically requires stickers to be posted in every taxi, livery, and other for-hire vehicle that states that assaulting a taxi or livery driver is punishable by up to 25 years in prison. It's a simple enough message, but what it really does is, you know, it will presumably have some sort of deterrent effect on crime itself, but also it just sends a signal that taxi worker safety is a real issue and it is taken seriously by the prosecutors and the um, law enforcement agencies uh, around New York City, Um, you know, Taxi driving is one of the most dangerous professions. It's often overlooked, but uh, taxi drivers suffer homicide rates of um, about 20 to 30 times that of the uh, national average throughout the rest of the workforce. Um, And so, you know, what this really says is that um, taxi workers are getting together. They are organized, and although their labor movement has been pretty embattled, uh, one thing that they do absolutely have common ground on and have public support from is that their safety matters behind the wheel. And that's a concern for everyone who's uh, ridden in a taxi or driven one. Um, Over on the other end of the business, we have the new wave of Uber drivers who are supposedly sort of, uh, you know, changing the way taxi the taxi industry works, but it sounds like um, they're uh, experiencing some old-fashioned labor grievances as well. They rallied um, in various different cities for better wages and fair working conditions, and it might, some say, mark the first, um, you know, real labor revolt in the so-called sharing economy. That's the economy that actually isn't really about sharing at all, but is about, um, you know, actually just, you know, just uh, making sure that labor is, stays unorganized and everyone is an independent contractor. But, alas, I digress. Um, the Uber workers are actually saying that um, even though they are using their own private vehicles, what they really need are basic core labor protections, such as, you know, um, a, a guarantee of, of steady wages. And, and Uber has been sort of slashing its prices in a, in a price war, and that has been hurting drivers. Um, they're also advocating for things like, you know, insurance policies that are devoted to the specific needs and concerns of uh, drivers who are using their own private cars as for hire vehicles. And that's something that um, Uber, Lyft, all these other services, these so-called ride sharing services have been really slow to come around on. And, you know, where all these things 
come together, I think, is, is uh, you know, if you go back to the taxi driver safety bill, that actually applies to Uber, Lyft drivers, as well as taxi drivers. And the New York Taxi Workers Alliance is, sees this sort of broad-based bill as their outreach to Uber drivers and saying that, you know, while we may all be working in different aspects of the sector and different businesses, what we can really agree on is that workers are not, you know, are getting short shrift and that we have concerns, common core concerns, which is worker safety that matter to everyone. Speaking of workers who are getting short shrift, which is kind of what we talk about all the time on this podcast, the fight for 15 has become the name that is is applied most often to the movement of fast food workers. Um, recently, we talked about the news that home health care workers were joining the, fa- the fight for 15 in terms of calling for $15 an hour wages and in many cases, actually joining fast food workers in their strikes and protests. Now, it seems the Walmart workers are deciding that $15 an hour is a great movement to hitch themselves to. There's already been, of course, a lot of common ground between the Walmart movement, our Walmart, which is backed by the United Food and Commercial Workers, and the SEIU-backed Fight for 15. But now this week, or last week rather, workers from Walmart stores around the country made it official, signing a petition that demands that the company pay them $15 an hour and provide consistent full-time work. And to back that up, several of them decided to get arrested. In delivering their petitions to the homes of some of the fantastically rich Walton heirs, like Alice Walton, who has a Manhattan residence that is worth some ridiculous amount of money... 14 Walmart workers and 12 supporters were arrested last week and charged with civil disobedience after staging a protest and sit-in outside of Alice Walton's place. So, the um, Retail Federation, of course, claims that this would be horrifying and impossible for anybody to pay, but Walmart, well, we know better about Walmart, don't we? Um, It is interesting to see $15 an hour... It went from being the demand of the movement to being law in one city and possibly others after next week's election. So we will have to see where else the $15 an hour minimum wage spreads to. Yeah, not so horrifying and impossible after all. Not what so horrifying know? and impossible. But you know what is horrifying and impossible? Living on $9 an hour. Nine, horrifying if you're lucky. Impossible. $9 yeah. an hour if you're lucky. Speaking of Election Day, it is, of course, next Tuesday. And so if you are in New York and you are trying desperately to decide who you're going to vote for on Tuesday, um, our next interview might just help you with that. Uh, We have Brian Jones. He is the lieutenant governor candidate of the Green Party. He is also a New York City teacher of many years and possibly a familiar face to some of you who are aware of New York City political circles. We have Brian here to talk about why he decided to run for office, what running for office has in common with running for union office, and much more. So, Brian, you have been a teacher. You ran for office within the United Federation of Teachers. What made you work, move from working within the union to running for statewide office? Um, well, <laughs> that's a good question. I... Howie Hawkins, the Green Party candidate for governor, uh, asked me to run. And at first I had a tremendous apprehension about it. Um, I've never run for office before and certainly did not understand what the potential benefits might be. But what convinced me, Howie's argument convinced me as I began talking to educators and other allies that this governor, Cuomo, was vulnerable on the issue of 
education Mm -hmm. and that the ways in which he had attacked both teacher unions and public education was creating a groundswell of anger that such a campaign could tap into. And how he, I think it has to be said, was proved correct um, by that. Yeah, I I know you've been endorsed by several teachers' unions across the state. Also, it's interesting that on the other side of the aisle, Republican Rob Astorino has started his Common Core opposition party. I definitely want to talk about how the Common Core in particular became such an issue, Mm. and also how it's created this weird sort of place for common ground Mm -hmm. with the left Mm -hmm. and right. Mm -hmm. Well, um, yes, common ground in a sense, but... um, it's not as much of a coalition as one might think. Um, you know, the right-wing opposition to Common Core is also bound up with opposition to public education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people like Rob Estorino also favor vouchers and charter yeah. schools and all of that sort of stuff, and they're opposed to unions, and they want to yeah. get rid of the Triborough. He wants to get rid of the Triborough Amendment and, you know, <laughs> empower the state to further rip up right. union contracts. Right. There are some people who, on the left, have tried to tap into that right-wing sentiment, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's it's been fraught with problems, and it's not been as fortuitous as, as we might like. There is a reality to the fact that being hit from the left and the right on the issue has made the Common Core a, an object of serious debate, of backtracking on the Common Core. Mm-hmm. There is a dynamic of pressure from both sides that, that is having an effect, there's no doubt. From the left, I don't think we should play to the right. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a reality to the fact that they're getting it from both sides. Mm -hmm. And in terms of just what what you're hearing from from teachers, from parents around the state as you've been campaigning, um, Mm. talk about some of the things you hear about the Common Core. Parents are very frustrated. Um, They feel that the Common Core is immiserating their children bringing home homework that's incredibly hard, um, that there's just a level, a very high level of frustration built into the Common Core and then the Common Core-aligned curriculum and the Common Core-aligned, or I should say curricula, and the Common Core-aligned tests. Um, That seems to be part of what it's all about. And people are just really, really furious. Now, it's true, though, at the same time, that there are educators you talk to and that I have talked to traveling the state who like elements of the Common Core Mm -hmm. and who feel afraid of a movement to just end it full sail because along with the Common Core comes funding. Right. And so they're afraid of losing that funding and they're afraid of unwinding it. Some people experience the Common Core as an improvement over the standards that came before, Mm -hmm. especially if they are a specialist teaching in one particular subject Mm -hmm. that, you know, and one particular grade, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, there might be some gems in there and they say, oh, this is an improvement. Mm -hmm. Similar to the charter school movement, some parents moved from a worse public school to a better charter school, therefore they experience it as an improvement and therefore draw conclusions generally about charter schools. And so I think while validating people's individual experiences, we can say, that overall, though, the Common Core is bound up with privatization, that it's a vehicle of privatization, that its purpose is to serve as a platform for the rapid proliferation of Common core line products that, therefore, schools feel compelled to purchase so that they can rise to the standards. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those fundamental critiques, uh, I think, are important. And then on the kind of just educator side, in addition to people who experience it as an improvement, I think it's important to balance that 
by understanding that there are a great number of people who don't experience it as improvement, especially people in lower grades where they feel that the standards are developmentally inappropriate. You know, four and five and six and seven-year-old children develop at dramatically different rates, can do different things in different years, and to say that they all must be doing certain numerate activities or literate activities at a certain month on the pacing calendar uh, is just flies in the face of everything we know about child development. Mm -hmm. And so there's tremendous frustration, especially in the early grades, and they feel that it's crowding out free imaginative play, which is essential work in childhood. Just to clarify a little bit, um, to what extent is Common Core already kind of like entrenched in a done deal? I mean, I, my because my understanding is that this is, you know, they always say it's a process, mm-hmm. it's evolving, mm-hmm. and the tests don't count or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, so can you just clarify, is it uniform across the state? What is their variation? What? The state has backed off of evaluating teachers based on the tests, but it's only a temporary moratorium. The students still have to take the tests, and the students still live and die by the tests. In New York City, the chancellor has eased off of of assigning a single letter grade mainly based on standardized tests, all of which are steps in the right direction, but these are, are baby steps away from high-stakes standardized common core line testing. Um, they're not yet an abolition of this whole system of schooling. So it's more like 10 steps forward, one or two steps back. Um, and then we'll take those one or two steps back. We'll take that relief. Um, but but what they do is take a few steps back so as to further perfect the system and move it forward. Whereas I think there are many of us who are arguing that 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 those few steps back are what need to be continued. That the whole thing is is fraught with problems. Uh, another fundamental problem: there's no recourse with the Common Core standards. There's no uh, process for revising them or changing them. There's no research connected to them. So there's no, you know, were we to go back to square one and have a research-based process, a trial period in some places, um, that would be something that would make more sense. But to get there from here is quite a trick. Um, If enough parents and teachers and students continue to raise hell about it, that trick may happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's going to be quite a battle. There's an incredible amount of money invested in this motion, in the motion of one standard all the way across the nation and all products, curriculum products, testing products, consultancy products, you know, bring in the Common Core line consultants to help your school, blah, blah, jump through the blah, 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 Common Core hoop. Those extra tutors that we'll need to prep That's right. It's like the, it's like the, uh, you know, iOS. It's like Apple's, you know, uh, you know, mobile operating (laughs) system. It's a platform upon which you have all these products. And once you have this like ecosystem of products that's been cultivated, getting them all off the market so that we can reevaluate the platform is going to be quite a trick. But that's the fundamental trick that we have to do and i mean while until we perform that trick we're gonna have a lot of miserable children right and, and you already see the pushback starting with the boycott of the tests and mm-hmm. all this other stuff mm-hmm. i mean all you can do at this point is basically to just sort of you know civil disobedience That's and right. just kind of starve the starve the machine i starve guess of the machine data. so uh, talk about how your own insights mm-hmm. as an educator and working mm-hmm. in the field of education and education mm-hmm. advocacy as well as you know the academic work that you've mm-hmm. done looking at education research how do you parlay that into a, into a political message? Well, certainly anybody who's worked a decent amount of time in classrooms has a gazillion stories to tell about all of the ways in which teaching, which could be an amazing experience, gets perverted and twisted and frustrated by 
what's happening now, the corporate privatization of education. So I've got a million stories to that effect. And I've, you know, sat down and jotted a few of them down and tried to jog my memory and say, how can I use my experience in the classroom um, to convey to a broad audience what I feel is going on? So, yes, I view this electoral effort um, as a megaphone with which to more loudly tell the stories of what's going on in the classroom. Stories like... um, doing a science experiment with my fourth grade class one year in East Harlem and having it interrupted in the middle of the science experiment, like trays out, materials being poured, observations jotted, everybody's busy, beehive of activity, in comes the supervisor saying, stop everyone, and rolling in a um, a crate of test preparation workbooks. And I was, you know, okay, sure, we'll just place them right here and, you know, we're almost done. And then when we're done, we'll begin the workbooks. No, Mr. Jones, stop the experiment right now and begin on the test preparation workbooks. And I begged her in front of my students to not to let us just finish this test in progress. But the extent of the, I mean, I almost don't blame my supervisor at the time, the extent of the pressure that my school was under to raise test scores, it literally was a question of our jobs mm-hmm. and of the, whether or not the school would continue to exist. So there's just a million stories like that about the ways in which the pressures right now that are raining down on schools actually can work against authentic teaching and learning and what we imagine we'd like to have children doing in school. And how does that connect to the communities that these schools are serving and some of the the broader issues of inequality? Yeah, well, the the tremendous irony is that much of this is being done in the interest or in the name of social and racial justice, if you will. Like, this is how we're going to get justice for those predominantly black and Latino students in East Harlem where I was teaching. And the irony is that actually you're taking away their science experiments. We know that every standardized test tells you who's rich and who's poor. It tells you who's black and who's white. It tells you who's in the cultural in-group of the society and who's out by language, by class, by ethnicity, by nationality. Um, That's what standardized tests tell you overwhelmingly. And so the students who are the most in, for whatever reason, on the the out-group actually then have to spend the most time on the test preparation. So in effect, you've already, in the process of trying to raise their test scores, inevitably robbed them of a more authentic educational experience. You robbed them of inquiry. Um, You know, inquiry, genuine inquiry in a classroom takes time. It takes time. And you can't rush through it. And it, you know, it, it takes detours. And it's not a linear process. And doing that, doing a classroom that way whether or not it raises standardized test scores, I think arguably is a better way to actually teach people. And looking more broadly at sort of the political landscape, you're running on the Green Party ticket. Mm-hmm. Do you, where do you envision sort of third party politics in the state? I know it's a big question, but just yeah, sort of looking, yeah, looking ahead, question. I mean, Absolutely. we already have um, other, you know, third party efforts going on in mm-hmm. various forms, whether it's the Working Families Party or Cuomo's mm-hmm. Women's mm-hmm. Equality Party, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they all have their own issues and they all have mm-hmm. their own stakes mm-hmm. in the game. So mm-hmm. how do you see that actually But most of them, together? interestingly, of course, don't have their own candidates. Right, right. Most of them are cross-endorsing, so right. you're running right. on a platform as an independent right. candidate. Yes. I think the cross-endorsement system is a way to take leftists and progressives and keep them in the fold of the Democratic Party. 
that's its real purpose is to take people who have who want to see a kind of independent left politics and to keep them in the fold and say by voting on this line you are then some way pressuring this candidate and i think what we've seen most starkly in this election cycle with the working families party is that even the you know puny promises that they were able to extract from Cuomo in, in in exchange for their endorsement first of all he's reneged on those and second of all then he turned around and stabbed them in the back by creating another ballot line that to attract progressive voters which will inevitably take votes away from the working families party line so I think it's kind of gut check time for people who uh, want to see genuine independent politics to ask the question, why is it that those politics always have to remain within the orbit of the Democratic Party? And is that actually an effective strategy for promoting genuine change? I would argue that independence is really priceless, that for people who want to push, even people who just want to push the Democratic Party, actually not voting for them may be the most effective way to do it because then your vote is actually worth something to them. Um, I think that by promoting a genuine independent third party, um, it may have the paradoxical effect of getting more out of the major parties um, and, and genuinely shifting the debate to the left. Ideally, I'd like to see an independent third party that can win elections and that can actually govern Um and until we get there, uh, I think we have to stick up for the idea that being independent of the Democrats is very important. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, Howie Hawkins, I think, was highlighting earlier this week that, um, you know, the, the Green Party's actual share of the vote in the polling and stuff has actually gone up, I think. In this oh, it's gone up quite a bit. I mean, in 2010, Howie Hawkins got 1.3% of the vote, which was enough to guarantee automatic ballot status statewide. He got 1.3%. The, turns out the record for an independent, not cross-endorsing, mm-hmm. third-party campaign in all of New York State's history is 5%. Nobody's ever gotten more than 5%. And right now we're polling at 9%. In a couple of upstate districts, we're at 10 and 12%. In the city of Syracuse, we're in second place ahead of the Republican Party with 24%. So we're doing things, and I think I'm hoping knock on wood, that we will break that record. I don't know if we will, um, but that's what we're pushing for is to set a new higher standard and say that actually it's possible for third parties to stand on their own feet, independent of wealth, um, and actually attract a following. Um, I will say another unprecedented phenomenon is the endorsements we've gotten. We've gotten six union endorsements and to date six Democratic Party Club endorsements. Independent Democratic Party clubs that are so disgusted with the current administration, I don't think they're changing their registration from blue to green, but they're voting green and endorsing us. It's pretty uh, remarkable. Yeah. You're already making history before right, Election right. Day even happens. So. Yeah. I, I, the, the unions is the big question. Of course, the unions is what we talk about here on this podcast, but... We did see around the Working Families Party debate over who they were going to endorse, a lot of the unions, the big, even the unions that have very progressive histories, making the, the sort of argument that we have to endorse Cuomo because he's inevitably going to win, and so we have to get the best deal we can for our members. What would you say to, to people whose union endorsed Cuomo, to, to union leaders who endorse Cuomo on that argument? What would you argue to them why they should vote for you? Well, I think it's clear that Cuomo has been, um, he's attacked teacher unions. He's been on the attack on 
um, uh, public employee pensions. He's been uh, connected to the closing of hospitals statewide. He's been connected to certainly to the closing of schools. He's mandated that public schools pay rent for charter schools in New York City. And he's gone along with the whole corporate privatization movement in education and, and agreed that teachers should be evaluated based on high-stakes standardized test scores, which further ratchets up the stakes of already high-stakes tests. So on so many levels, Cuomo's agenda is not the agenda of organized labor. And on that basis, I think he needs to be opposed. I mean, in general, I think the unions... I mean, I honestly think they would be more powerful politically were they to be independent of the Democratic Party. Then, then the Democratic Party and, the, and, and even, who knows, the Republican Party would have to come to them begging. Um, it would change the political calculation. And certainly we've seen that in Seattle, where unions can go to the Democrats and say, well, we've got Kashama Sawant over here saying we need to have $15 an hour. What have you got for me? And right now, as long as there's nowhere for labor to go, then the Democrats understand that, that they have labor hostage and they can continue to slide to the right. Really, it's been uh, jetting to the right, not even sliding to the right. So if we are to have um, a strong labor movement, I think that's tied to labor speaking with its own voice and being independent. Speaking of the $15 an hour minimum wage, um, one of the many, many proposals that Andrew Cuomo has held up is the argument that Bill de Blasio has been making, among others, that New York City should be able to raise its minimum wage even over and above the state. Now, I know your campaign has called for $15 an hour mm -hmm. for the state, but coming, you're somebody who lives in New York City, you, mm -hmm. uh, as one of the most expensive places to live in the country, do you think that New York should, New York City should even go above the $15 an hour minimum wage? Certainly. And Howie Hawkins has argued that the, while the state should make it $15 an hour, there should be leeway for municipalities to raise it higher if need be. Um, yeah, we're facing a serious crisis here. I don't know anybody who um, could live on less than $15 an hour. It's very, very difficult um, to make ends meet in New York City. And, you know, one thing that people have said to me is um, inevitably the question comes up, well, what about small businesses? What about the bodegas and the restaurants and uh, what have you that would struggle to pay $15? That would be a huge leap from what they're paying now. And I think the answer has to be that instead of paying hundreds of millions of dollars in corporate welfare to billion-dollar businesses like General Electric, and by the way, New York leads the nation in corporate welfare. You heard that J.P. Morgan wants a big handout from the city uh, to build a new headquarters, right? Wow, I did not hear that, oh, but it's yeah. not surprising. Yep. So instead of that kind of corporate welfare, instead of those subsidies, why not exchange those for subsidies uh, for small businesses that would struggle to pay 15 and help them pay $15 an hour? Mm. Which, um, incidentally, makes a lot of economic sense as well as policies. <laughs> right, right. I mean, essentially what you saw in Wednesday night's debate, Cuomo and uh, the, the debate in Buffalo between uh, four candidates, including Howie Hawkins, um, Cuomo and Astorino were competing over themselves about who could cut taxes the most for businesses. There seems to be a new, um, not new, but a consensus emerging in the Democratic and Republican leaderships that trickle-down economics is the way to go, that it's all about stimulating business and those are the job creators, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I think we take the opposite view that the, that if we can spend, mobilize incredible sums to bail out banks, 
um, that it makes way more economic sense to bail out ordinary people. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous the kind of student loan debt, credit card debt, mortgage debt that people are saddled with, and with and there seems to be no relief. Yeah. Speaking of corporate welfare, um, <laughs> so going back to Albany, um, mm. the uh, the cesspool of corruption that is Albany, as as many would have it. Um, uh, many people just believe that doing anything meaningful in politics in Albany is just impossible, given the amount of you know just filthy lucre sloshing around in mm-hmm. in, in Albany right now. So, um, w- what would and and I mean you know both of the major candidates have all sort of said something to the effect of ridding Albany mm-hmm. of corruption. So, like, what what do you think is realistic and also actually visionary for actually doing something about um, corruption and all the related problems that it represents in, in, the, in terms of the way Albany works right now? Um, well, there's no doubt that actually getting rid of corruption in actual government is incredibly difficult. Um, just the way the society runs from top to bottom is riddled with b- straight-up bribery that is both legal and illegal. Um, and so changing the rules of the game is a, is a huge challenge. There are certain things that we could do that Howie Hawkins and others have proposed that would uh, constrain the 1% more than they are now, like um, forcing legislators, first of all, to have to work um, full-time, and not like just a few months a year as they do now and spend a lot of their time campaigning. Um, full public financing, not the kind of partial public financing that Cuomo's been um, loudly trumpeting, but full public financing of campaigns would be another. Um, there's a number of things that I think we have to do. One of the basic things is restart the Moreland Commission and have it give it genuine independent teeth to go out and look at corruption and go wherever it wants to go. Um, but empowering that kind of sweeping changes, it requires us to have a, a very, very powerful movement that would demand such changes. And I think the it, you could kind of make a general statement. It would be that the electoral or legislative successes that we would like to see getting into office, making sweeping legislative changes, all of those at the end of the day depend upon our grassroots strength. I just heard Ralph Nader speak the other day, and he basically admitted, and this guy's got one of you know the most incredible spate of legislative victories uh, through the course of the 20th century, just decades and decades of incredible, sweeping, profound changes in, in legislation. But he admits that none of that would have been possible if people hadn't been constantly in the streets, that with the incredible pressure that people applied to government it made it possible for people like him to go inside and draft something up and get it passed. And we live in the opposite context now. I don't want to say fully the opposite context, but a context where our movements are just trying to find their feet again. And so imagining that we're going to sweep away, you know, uh, corruption while we struggle to win basic rights at work, while we struggle to stop corporate education reform, I think it's all it's all of a package. That when we have real strength in the workplace and in the streets and in the schools, we will be able to push our legislative agenda. I think one of the most emblematic uh, 
you know, sort of uh, anti-big money debates that has been going down in this electoral cycle has probably been fracking. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sort of been a galvanizing issue in terms of just getting people, you know, off their chairs and actually, you know, knocking on doors. And and I think Howie Hawkins has actually gone a step further in terms of just integrating the anti-fracking platform into a broader agenda, like the Green New Deal mm-hmm. and, and those other types of things. I think for many people who are used to thinking of fracking as an environmental issue, um, how, how do you see it fitting into this broader program, both of you know tackling big money in politics yeah. and also advancing something that's really more proactive in terms yeah, of what we want to yeah, see? Yeah, well, there's a there's always a big question when you're talking about ripping up an existing infrastructure. So the whole fossil fuel industry, so-called natural gas, hydrofracking, all of which is big in New York. And the, by the way, the fossil fuel industry has given Cuomo over the course of his career something like $10 million. The owner of the Buffalo Bills, I just read this morning, gave him $30,000, and he made his money in natural gas. So the idea that Cuomo's just on the brink of turning around and, like, you know, stopping uh, or retarding the progress of hydrofracking, I think, is a real fantasy. As a matter of human survival, we have to stop pulling carbon up out of the ground and releasing it into the atmosphere. That much is clear. And you're right that Howie Hawkins also points out that there's a way we could connect up the incredible joblessness problem that we have in the state. I think it's something like 700,000 people in the state looking for work and the need for renewable energy. So I think it's Stanford has a study that it would be possible in New York State. It's technologically feasible and has been for a while to turn our fossil fuel energy system into a renewable energy system. But that conversion is a lot of work. It would require a lot of hands and it would require a lot of people to do that work. Uh, and it would create something like four and a half million jobs to do it, get it done by 2030. And then I think it's about 50,000 jobs to maintain it. So that, you know, in a WEP style, uh, WPA, sorry, style, a works program, state directed, uh, makes a lot of sense. And I think that you can imagine things for other industries as well. You know, the fossil fuel industry is a dirty industry. Those are bad jobs. Those are jobs that are stressful and, 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 and ruin your health. Similarly to the, the prison boom in New York State, you know, these whole towns that rely on prisons as a source of employment. Those are horrible jobs. Working in a prison, you know, keeping other human beings in cages, horrible, stressful, dirty jobs. And so much better to employ people, to transition people into good jobs, into well-paying renewable energy jobs, which are better jobs, which are jobs where you actually are doing something worth doing, something that helps people and helps our society. Um, And, you know, we would obviously have to set them up as well-paying jobs. So I think we have an interest. We can we can kill many birds, so to speak, or or save many birds yes. uh, with one stone. Feed many birds with one, with one piece of bread. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this actually folds into to my next question, which was, um, you know, fracking, I think, is also emblematic of this so-called upstate-downstate kind of tension, right, mm-hmm. where you have these mm-hmm. so-called sort of like liberal urban elites who are, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. railing on the environmental issue, mm-hmm. and you have the upstate mm-hmm. people who are still suffering from the ravages of deindustrialization, yeah. needing jobs. Yeah. How do you fit that together? I mean, just from a sales standpoint, in terms Absolutely. of just your messaging, I mean, how would you how would you say like yes, there, you know, our environmental interest is also our economic interest, yeah, you know, is also yeah. our children's futures interest, and, and and that sort of thing. And I mean, do you think that the upstate downstate thing is, is 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 overplayed? I guess, or is it exploited by politicians? 
Um, in some ways, it's exploited. Um, I, you know, speaking to teachers, the universal pre-K, which here oh, people yeah. experienced as like a relief, um, you know, it was better oh, funded yes. here. But upstate, it's like a bloodbath. I mean, I talked to people whose kindergarten programs were reduced in order to pay for the pre-K. Yeah. So we don't even have full K around the state. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was like a sh- kind of showpiece um, to say that they did it, but the reality of it on the ground was painful for people. So, yes, it's true that there's a way in which people get pit against each other, but um, it was a real education for me traveling the state. It has been a real education traveling the state and seeing the pain that people are in and, like, the suffering and the poverty. Um, you know, here's New York, this, like, liberal supposedly liberal progressive state and we have the most segregated schools by race and by class in the nation and the way that Cuomo has been draining the public sector in general starving the public coffers giving tax breaks to the wealthy um, and in particular draining the schools Um, literally nine billion dollars taken out of the schools by the gap elimination adjustment where he takes money out of the schools in order to fill his budget deficits created by tax breaks for the wealthy Um, people in all these little towns, describe it as a bloodbath. They've seen huge cuts to staff, cuts to essential services, special education services, physical education, arts programs, after-school programs. So we have tremendous wealth in the state piled up next to uh, poverty and suffering and, you know, uh, kind of running down of services. And so there, it also lays the groundwork for privatization because you run down the public service and then in comes a slick, glossy private operator promising you something better. Um, As we saw with the charter school Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And you can't, there's no market for charter schools if the school next door is really well-funded and has all kinds of special programming and is constantly expanding and adding new things and, you know, has small class sizes and rich curricula. If you, you, there's no market for charter schools in that kind of a world. So they have to degrade and run down and immiserate people in the public schools in order to make space for private operators. It's interesting when we talk about the upstate downstate thing, because what we saw with the Democratic primary was actually that Zephyr Teachout did much better upstate and actually New York City, which is supposedly where all of us weirdo pinko commie leftists are, voted for Cuomo. Mm -hmm. And so as we're as you're saying about places like Syracuse, where you're polling ahead of the Republican it might be interesting to sort of shake up some of those questions of where, where the liberals are and what are liberal issues mm-hmm. or what are leftist issues. Right. That's right. There's been several upstate newspaper editorials from mainstream upstate newspapers mm-hmm. that have straight up endorsed Howie Hawkins and or argued that he needs to be included in every debate, that he's not being given enough attention. It's actually in New York City yep. where it's been really we've struggled to break through the New York City media and they've ignored Howie Hawkins mostly yeah. um, with you know with the exception of a few mentions here and there but upstate he's taken way more seriously finally to wrap all of this up I want to talk about socialism okay you mentioned you mentioned Sama Sawant before in mm-hmm. Seattle mm-hmm. her victory seems to have kicked off a whole round of openly socialist candidates around the country mm-hmm. why is it important to you to talk about socialism why is it important to have people running for office who call themselves socialists and aren't afraid of uh, mm-hmm. the S word. Well, I think socialism is making a comeback. There's a new generation that didn't grow up in either the McCarthyist era nor in the Cold War um, and who are not as freaked out by the S or C word um, 
in the way that people who grew up with either of those things can be. And so consistently there's a whole bunch of polling that shows that younger people are way more open to socialist ideas. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that it's, it's, um, I think it's becoming clearer to people that it's hard to imagine a way that capitalism can actually solve our problems. One of the most extreme examples is climate change, where it's becoming clearer and clearer that the free market has a certain short-sightedness built into it. Um, and all of the kind of stingy market mechanisms that the Democratic Party proposes to do something about climate change, like, you know, cap and trade or, you know, creating a, a, a free market in pollution credits. In like fetal neurotoxins. <laughs> I mean, just... <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> you know, I think it's becoming increasingly clear to a new generation of people that those aren't real solutions. You know, and then when people do try to speak out about it, it's remarkable the extent to which um, both the Democratic and Republican parties will move to use dramatic repressive force. I mean, what what exactly was the threat posed by people pitching tents in Zuccotti Park? Um, it certainly wasn't an occupation of a factory or a bank or, you know, it was a park. Right. And yet they systematically cleared the encampments all over the country pretty much on the same set of days in a coordinated raid to end the Occupy movement. And well, I shouldn't say end it, but to at least, you know, move it. Well, they wanted to. <laughs> yeah. To neutralize. Yeah, to neutralize they it. They certainly like, wanted to. There's it. something about, there's something about um, I think, the experience of being under a, a so-called liberal democratic president that's radicalizing people. Where you have the constitutional law, you know, lawyer president who seems to violate the constitution on a regular basis and seems to be escalating the wars. And certainly, if you had asked somebody what was the hope for changing the world in 2008, it would have been Obama. And whether it's schools or war or detention or wiretapping and spying on, you know, domestic spying. Certainly, you would have been laughed at if you had said that Obama was going to expand all of those things, if he was going to expand the corporate war on education. And people just wouldn't have taken you seriously. But now that people have lived through that, uh, I think there's a new generation that thinks that there's got to be something other than the Democratic Party and maybe other than capitalism uh, that can solve our problems. And certainly, in the, you know, the past model was that we would build an independent po politics based on the unions. Right. And even in many of our social, the civil rights movement, the, the labor movement, based on independent strength of unions, union dues, union infrastructure that, that forms the background. Is that going to be possible again? I don't know. But I think in the teacher unions, you see more than maybe any other sector, you see a kind of radical breakaway that's beginning to get legs, where in certain cities around the country, um, radicals, you know, pinko commie radical types, <laughs> as you say so eloquently, are getting elected to run the union um, in major American cities. And if that trend continues, that may be a kind of stronghold for social movements that align themselves with those unions and maybe even political campaigns that align themselves with those movements. So that kind of left labor coalition may reemerge. You know, that would be one way that this could go. And that was Brian Jones. He is running for lieutenant governor on the Green Party ticket alongside Howie Hawkins. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And 
now it's time for our favorite portion of the show. It's ARG. I wish I'd written that. And that was a extra piratey ARG for Halloween. So in our Halloween edition of ARG, my pick for the week was Dreamboat Vampires and Zombie Catalysts in the spirit of Halloween. Um, it was written by David Castillo and William Eggington in the New York Times um, stone blog of their opinion section. So I picked this because um, it focused on a classic rivalry in cinematic lore, which is, of course, zombies versus vampires. And what, might you ask, does that have to do with labor? Well, it actually turns out that, you know, looking at this uh, famous trope of these two monsters pitted against each other is actually a very useful framework for critiquing capitalism. And the authors write that zombies uh, represent something very specific about um, human nature and human decay. Say they are most often... Slow, mindless, shambling, putrid excrescences in a perpetual state of decay. Yes, that's a real word. Mm, vampires, on the other hand, represent a kind of higher place in the food chain. One could at least imagine wanting to become a vampire. Uh, the current vogue of carnival-like zombie walks notwithstanding, we can safely assume that no one would really want to become a zombie. And yet... Right? Um, what do vampires say about society? Well, we know that they emerged in the Victorian era, just when industrial capitalism and uh, was, was sort of uh, on the rise. And uh, they raised some very important uh, ethical and moral questions about you know, the relationship of human beings to each other. And vampires, as you might know, um, are a predatory creature, right? Even though they embody sort of an ethereal, uh, beautiful kind of horror, the authors write, the dead, while dear to us, lose their human aspect in their physical existence and take on the repulsive quality of decay in terms of zombies. And yet, in terms of vampires, we yearn for and project something eternal, unchanging, an animate presence that we refuse to surrender to the degeneration of time. But with vampires, right, um, they're different from zombies because they radiate this sublime beauty, right? Um, and uh, zombies will, uh, of course, they're monstrous excrescences brought on by the fundamental imbalance of the world of men. So basically, the conundrum that this presents in front of everyone is, are we vampires? Are we zombies? And what kind of capitalism do we live in? And they conclude by saying that vampires represent the moral ambivalence around the earlier era of industrial capitalism, in which you actually had predation, exploitation, and a much more visceral physical sense, and you saw sort of the glorification of the predator. Whereas zombies represent sort of the detritus of late capitalism and sort of the decay that is all plunged us all into, whether we are the ones doing the exploiting or we are the ones being preyed upon. So the zombies are at once the predators and the prey of the horrific kind of system in which uh, they are entrenched. So think about that this Halloween. And tell us which Halloween costume you've chosen. I did not intentionally pick this piece for Halloween, but it is actually one of the most disturbing things I've read in quite a long time. The piece is called The Laborers Who Keep Dick Picks and Beheadings Out of Your Facebook Feed, and it is by Adrian Chen at Wired. And what Mr. Chen did is travel to the Philippines and talk to the workers who literally, yes, spend their day looking at really horrific stuff on the internet so that you don't have to. He spoke to an expert who estimates that there are well over 100,000 of these workers around the world, and most of them are literally around the world in places like the Philippines, where these very fancy Silicon Valley high-tech companies that brag about how well they treat their workers here are relying on people they can pay a few bucks a day to be traumatized by really, really horrific images. And if you think I'm 
lying and read this article, it does in fact describe some of these images. And just the, the description of some of it is, is enough to sort of has been haunting me. This is, of course, it is the um, intersection of two issues that I think about a lot and that we talk about a lot in this podcast. One of them, of course, is the outsourcing of all work that can possibly be outsourced to people who live across the world and make a lot less money. The other is the emotional labor of dealing with something like this, especially when people are looking at violent images day after day after day, when they're literally watching videos of beheadings and torture that are being posted to the internet by and posted to social networks. What kind of a toll does that take on you? What kind of emotional damage does that do if this is your job to spend eight hours a day in a cubicle looking at all the horrible stuff that somebody posted to the internet every single day? And he talks to a lot of these workers, and including to some workers who did this labor in the U.S. as entry-level workers right out of college, but also to people in the Philippines who are getting ruthlessly exploited in order to have a miserable job where your job is literally to look at the worst the internet has to offer all day. Interesting also, he talks about the way that this labor is kind of hidden. He writes, when I asked Microsoft, Google, and Facebook for information about how they moderate their services, they offered vague statements about protecting users but declined to dis discuss specifics. Many tech companies make their moderators sign strict non-disclosure agreements, barring them from even talking to other employees of the same outsourcing firm about their work. And he goes on to quote a media studies scholar saying that if there's not an explicit campaign to hide that this labor is done by people, not by algorithms, that there's certainly a tacit one, that the underlying premise of this, right, is that technology is not magic, technology is made run by people, and that while the people at the top of these companies are making a lot of money and being universally celebrated, they are kept running by large numbers of outsourced workers who are doing the really, really worst job. On that note, happy Halloween. This has been episode 64 of Belabored. You can send us, as always, your thoughts, suggestions, questions, Halloween costumes, commentary on zombies versus vampires, the most disgusting thing you've ever seen on the internet. Please just don't send us pictures. And but, but do put your costume photos on Twitter. Do, yeah, you us. can send us your costume photos. We want to see those. And any ideas that you have for things we should cover in the future? You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and tweet at us at hashtag belabored. And we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored. Belabored.